Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. Happy Valentine's Day. If you happen to actually celebrate that or feel guilty about not celebrating it, whatever. So it's Monday, which means that I am joined by my colleague, Will Salatin. First of all, happy Monday, post-Super Bowl, Valentine's Day, Monday, Will. Uh, thank you, Charlie. And uh, in honor of Valentine's Day, Charlie and I are going to exchange the traditional Bulwark Valentine's Day gift of the matching Liz Cheney, Adam Kinzinger bath towels. Do you think we're ever going to have Larry Hogan bath towels? <laughs> I don't know. I guess uh, I guess if you really need the larger towel, we can go that way. Okay, so uh, because it is the, the day after the Super Bowl and it's Valentine's Day, uh, Will Salatin, are you pro or anti-sexual anarchy? I am pro, uh, but within boundaries. I'd say I'm trying to imagine what it must be like to be Charlie Kirk. I mean, you know, first of all, I, let, let's not overanalyze this. I mean, Charlie Kirk is a full-time grifter, and he's like dumb as a box of freaking rock, rocks, right? I mean, it's he's sitting watching the Super Bowl, and uh, look, I, I, I don't want to get into the, the, the halftime show. It was obviously not aimed at my generation necessarily, but he then tweets out, you know, this is out of control. The NFL is now the League of Sexual Anarchy. This halftime show should not be allowed on television. Yeah, it, it, Has he ever a watched a halftime show before? Has he ever watched dancing? Has he ever watched... What is the... Why? What what world does he inhabit inside that, that empty cranium of his? Okay, so a, a great question. And, you know, I, look, I am not an expert in Super Bowl halftime shows, but I've seen a few in my day. It's my impression that this halftime show was certainly not more sexually weird than any other Super Bowl halftime show. It was blacker, but it wasn't sexually weirder. Uh, yeah. Does that have something to do with this reaction? I don't know. Although I suggested in my newsletter that League of Sexual Anarchy would make a great Netflix series. I would watch that. The League of Sexual Anarchy. That would be a thing. No, look, I mean, uh, you you go back historically, and you know, you know, let's let's not spend too much time on this. But I'm guessing the the Shakira uh, J Lo show probably was a little bit more provocative, but this one was. Uh, he had to come up with something to say about it, but he, you know, I, I guess he couldn't say, "Why are all of these black rappers on my television screen? What's wrong with the NFL?" So he went with sexual anarchy, even though there was really not that much sexual anarchy at all. Yeah, I I, and, okay. Right. Now, okay, can I let me can I go a little wonky on this? Like is this kind of reflective of the absence of any sort of serious morally conservative agenda among people who call okay. themselves conservatives now? Like, I mean, look, you just you nominated and elected a sexual predator, for example, right? You clearly don't care about any kind of sexual propriety or respect for other people's boundaries. So you now go nuts over a halftime show at a Super Bowl that isn't actually any weirder sexually than any other. So I think it's just that these people on the the young right are trying to make up for the lack of any sort of serious conservative values agenda on their part. So what would the definition of sexual anarchy be? Would it be this, quote, I did try and fuck her. She was married. I moved on her like a bitch, but I couldn't get there. And she was married. Then all of a sudden I see her. She's now got the big phony tits and everything. She's totally changed her look. I got to use some Tic Tacs just in case I start kissing her. You know, I'm automatically attracted to beautiful. I just start kissing them. It's like a magnet. Just kiss. I don't even wait. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Grab them by the pussy. You can do anything. 
that seems like sexual anarchy to me, Will. Uh, yeah, actually, it sounds a little like sexual tyranny. <laughs> okay, I may have missed it. I don't know how I would have missed it if it's out there, but Eminem actually took a knee. He defied the NFL, who told him, do not take a knee, don't do that. But he did at the end of his show. You would think there'd be all that outrage. I'm not seeing anything about this. Yeah, it's kind of the obverse of the masks, isn't it? I mean, like, you know, after the Super Bowl, there were all these people on the right saying, hey, nobody wore masks. They were supposed yeah. to wear masks. So now masks are over, right? Can we declare They're the over. same about taking the knee? You know, it, it happened. They're, it, the world did not because end. conservatives are all into protest, right? They're all into, you know, fuck your feelings. Let's, you know, block the bridges. Let's do this. We know that we're going to invade the Capitol. So actually, peaceful protests like taking a knee just don't seem that relevant anymore, right? Yeah, I it it looks to me like people are chilling out. Yeah, I, I wonder, <laughs> I, I seriously do wonder whether we're like coming out of the Omicron wave and getting, you know, after two years of COVID, people are just going to chill out about a lot of things. That would be great. Uh, but I don't know if we're there yet. I I, just, I don't have a chill vibe. I just don't feel we're we're, we're chilling it. But it was it was a great game. I mean, the NFL has all kinds of serious flaws, which we could spend some other you know t podcast on. But that was seven consecutive playoff games that were interesting. I mean, I remember there was it felt like a period of like twenty years where the Super Bowl was a blowout. It wasn't that interesting, and then they became interesting. And but this season, I mean, who knew? Um, I don't, there was not a single boring fourth quarter in any of the playoff games. So whatever. I, I agree. Like I actually, I thought basically this was the least excite. It was an exciting game and it was the least exciting because there had been so many like overtime games. Uh, so Charlie, as a the bar so high, were, you, yeah. were you rooting for the Bengals in this game? I was, but I wasn't, you know, look, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Packer guy. I, I wasn't deep. I wasn't emotionally engaged. The people I was watching with were very, very much into the Bengals. And I, I, I like the story. I mean, I like, I like, the, I like Cincinnati. I like the, the underdog story that, you know, the Joe Burrow story, but I was not emotionally invested. Okay. So let's move on. Larry Hogan. Governor of Maryland, who uh, broke Mitch McConnell's heart by not running for Senate. There was no way he was going to run for Senate in Maryland. It was just not going to happen. Uh, but Larry Hogan's been a very successful, popular Republican governor in a very, very Democratic state. And he has been anti-Trump, never Trump, uh, pretty much from the beginning. And he goes on CNN yesterday and makes it clear that he's he's willing to break with the Trumpists. He's willing to break with the RNC. And he's thinking of running in 2024. This is Larry Hogan. I've been speaking out loudly and strongly about this battle for the soul of the party. Uh, you know, to, to say it's legitimate political discourse to attack the seat of our Capitol and smash windows and attack police officers and threaten to hang the vice president and threaten to overthrow the election. It's insanity. And, you know, it's a there's a circular firing squad where we attack Republicans, you know, the Republican Party that I want to get back to is the one that believes in freedom and truth and not one that attacks people who don't uh, swear 100 percent fealty to the dear leader. Hmm. So this inspired me to start thinking about, you know, to dream the impossible dream, to fight the unbeatable foe. So this is quixotic, isn't it? To think that there is a lane for sane Republicans anymore. OK, so that is my general view. However, in that interview, Larry Hogan goes on to say, he says, you know, the Republican Party, the, the polls used to show that in the in the GOP, 80 something percent of the party wanted Trump to run again and would vote for him. He says that number's down to 50 percent. Now, that's really interesting to me, not 
the, just the fact itself, but the fact that Larry Hogan is saying it. That to me says that Larry Hogan and his people have researched this and that they are looking for the anti-Trump lane and trying to assess whether it is plausible. Now, my gut says it's not, but if he's got numbers that indicate to him that there is a little opening for him, I think that's great. You know, uh, I, I am a Maryland voter. I oh, literally voted oh. for Larry Hogan the last time around for governor. I would not vote for Larry Hogan for Senate. I think there are a lot of people like me in Maryland, and that's why he's not running for the Senate. I don't want Larry Hogan to be giving, you know, the Republicans a Senate majority. But I'd be happy to vote for Larry Hogan if I could get into a Republican presidential primary to vote because I think he'd be, you know, pushing the party in the right direction. Um, well, I agree. And the, 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 there is a new CNN poll that finds that Republican and Republican-leaning voters are about evenly split between wanting their party to nominate Trump again or wanting a different candidate. So Trump is down to only 50% want Trump. Only 50%. A different candidate, 49%. Now, a majority of actual, you know, hardcore Republicans, 54% favored Trump, compared with only 38% of Republican-leaning independents. So, when he makes that reference, there is a certain softness. Look, I mean, the odds are just incredibly overwhelming here. I mean, this is there's no question about what the dynamic is. I mean, you look at the polls, you look at history, you just look around what's happening at Republican parties. But I have to say, you know what? At some point, we have to make the decision. Are we going to support the people who stand up? I mean, you know, there there are people who had, a, you know, Liz Cheney, Adam Kinzinger, they were with Trump up almost up until the end. But at a certain point, we need converts. We need allies. And and Larry Hogan is stepping up where others have refused to do it, like Ben Sass, the great, you know, Nebraska hope. So I wrote this morning. So kind of huzzah, question mark. It's like, let's let's go with this. This is this is, you know, at least worth listening to that. He's saying these things. So Lindsey Graham, um, on the flip side, he was uh, was also on Sunday morning and explaining why this was still Trump's party. And even though he had broken with Trump for about what was it about five minutes, Will? <laughs> Were there even five? <laughs> Remember when he said, "I'm done with you." Until some lady yelled at him in the airport and was like, okay, I'm sorry. No, no, no. I am back. So anyway, this is where Lindsey Graham's head is at right now. So number one uh, is his nomination for the taking in 2024 if he wants. If he wants to be the Republican nominee for the Republican Party, it's his for the taking. Uh, my floor comments were about the 2020 election. I am not contesting the 2020 election. I'd like to reform the system. The problems we found in 2020 need to be addressed. But the 2020 election is over for me. Donald Trump is the most consequential Republican in the Republican Party today. He has a great chance of being president again in 2024. If he'll start comparing what he did as president versus what's going on now and how to fix the mess we in, we're in. If he looks backward, I think he's hurting his chances. Do you want to go into Lindsey Graham's head? Because I'm, I'll stand on the outside and let you go in and tell me what's going on there. Uh, the quote that really kills me in that statement from Lindsey Graham is that it's his for the taking, the way he describes the Republican nomination and Donald Trump. Now, this comes in the middle of an interview that starts, of course, with the immediate context of, is there going to be a war in Ukraine? And Lindsey Graham is totally going off on Putin and how we have to have not just sanctions, but preemptive sanctions. We have to sanction the guy before he goes in to send a clear message to this predator, this aggressor, this will not stand, we will not. Then they segue to Trump and all of a sudden, 
Lindsey Graham's attitude toward this guy who literally instigated an attack on the capital of the United States so that he could stay in power is that the Republican nomination is his for the taking. The carpet is rolled out for Trump because suddenly if it's an American aggressor who's attacking our country, well, all good Republicans should get in line with him. Yeah, pretty much. Although clearly he's... You know, he's trying to have it both ways. He's trying to say Trump is the most consequential Republican, but he's not relitigating 2020, which is the ultimate heresy. That's it. That's the bright line. That means he's still a rhino. So, I mean, you don't know how he's going to, you know, the beating will continue until Lindsey falls back into place, I guess. I don't know. So I want to get to Ukraine in in a moment. But I th- this whole debate about what's happening with the Republican Party is interesting. And the Washington Post had a, an interesting piece. I was tempted to think of it as a little bit wish casting. But the headline was, A Weakened Trump, uh, Some Voters Edge Away, He Battles Parts of the Republican Party He Once Ran. And it starts with a story about what's going on in Michigan, where there's a completely crazy Trump-endorsed candidate for attorney general who is deep into the conspiracy theories, pushed all kinds of completely discredited theories about the election. And the sane Republicans are saying, yeah, we're, we're done with you. But this guy is running the pro-Trump insurgency campaign, and they write similar clashes between Republican leaders and the candidates Trump has embraced have been playing out across the country with growing ferocity in recent months. A chaotic sign that Trump's once unchallenged hole in the party rank and file supporters is waning, even if by degrees. Now, I've been obviously because I'm here in Wisconsin following what's happened here over the weekend, and we have a similar story here where you have a Republican establishment which has been um, willing to go along with Trump, willing to throw him red meat to appease him, and yet it's not been enough. And so over the weekend, uh, a Trump-aligned candidate uh, who is running explicitly, explicitly on an agenda of overturning the 2020 election. I mean, when I say explicitly, he wants to actually revoke Wisconsin's electoral votes. He is the candidate of Mike Lindell and Michael Flynn. And I mean that literally. So Timothy Rantham announces he's running for governor. This comes a week after we have this report in Rolling Stone that Timothy Rantham talks on the phone on a regular basis with Donald Trump. And Donald Trump has been encouraging him. Mike Lindell, my pillow guy, shows up in Kewaskum, Wisconsin, at this big rally for Timothy Rantham. Michael Flynn calls in. And most of the energy of this rally is not aimed at the Democratic incumbent governor of Wisconsin, Tony Evers. It's aimed at other Republicans, other actually kind of pro-Trumpist Republicans who have drawn the line at actually overturning the election. So here you have Trump upping the ante and, and aligning himself with the craziest of the crazies in a state where if he just kind of cruised along, he'd be able to got Ron Johnson running for Senate. He'd have a, you know, a pro-Trump uh, Republican candidate, but that's not enough. He wants, he's pushing it, he's pushing it. And I kind of wonder whether this escalation in places like Michigan and Wisconsin, you know, what is the end game for these folks? I don't know. Well, okay, so let me ask you, since you you know Republican politics way better than I do, I mean, I have two questions for you. One, can these wacky candidates actually win their primaries, or what are their chances? And secondly, if they do win it, is this a normal kind of year where nominating a wacky candidate, like a Christine O'Donnell type, will actually cost you the general election? Or is the wave of anti-Biden so high this year that even these whack jobs 
can get elected. Well, those are two really, really good questions. So in Wisconsin, I don't think that Timothy Rantham can win. But what he will do is he will force the other candidates to embarrass themselves by moving into the Trumpy lane. He will troll them into saying really stupid things that will embarrass them in a general election. Now, your other question is, let's imagine that the craziest person got on the ballot. I don't know. I can't speak to Michigan, but in Wisconsin, I think that there is some line of, you know, too, too crazy even for Republicans. But, you know, look, having had Donald Trump win the presidency before, who knows whether that's true. But I do think that what's going to happen is it's going to create a really vicious dynamic in the Republican primary and in Republican pri- uh, politics, because right now it, it, it felt like a switch. A month ago, Republicans in Wisconsin were reasonably confident that they were going to have a good midterm election. You have a very weak Democratic incumbent. It looks like it's going to be an anti-Biden year. Um, they have some you know, reasonably strong, well-funded uh, candidates. And so they were they were feeling the wind was at their back. And then Trump drops this massive turd bomb in into the campaign and they turned on one another. So there's this big campaign, fire the Republican Speaker of the Assembly, who has spent the last few months aggressively sucking up to Donald Trump, but it's not enough. And so now you have Republican on Republican, and it's going to be bitter. So I don't know the answer to your question about the general election, but I think that it's uh, it, will, it will make the – there's no upside, I think, for the Republicans right now in what's going on here in Wisconsin. None. And there's going to be real bitterness, I think, in the division that we haven't really seen um, recently. Okay, so when Lindsey Graham is on TV saying, I don't want to relitigate 2020, that's not, and he's telling Donald Trump, it will help Donald Trump and his legacy not to relitigate 2020 and talk about the future instead. Is that Lindsey Graham talking about the Republican, about Donald Trump, which he claims to be, or is Lindsey Graham essentially on TV begging Donald Trump, please stop pushing relitigating the 2020 election because that has the is the one thing that could take down our candidates in 2022. Yeah, that, I think that's what he's doing and it won't have any effect at all. I mean there's there's zero chance that Donald Trump is going to let go of this. I mean this is this is all he's he has and he's going to push it and he's going to push it and he's going to push it and he's going to demand loyalty and he'll he'll throw Lindsay under the bus, but the thing is that, that this is the paradox is that Donald Trump still has the Republican party unless he decides to break it. So in Wisconsin, there were no anti-Trump candidates running for statewide office in Wisconsin. You know, I'm, I'm still out here on an island in exile, and yet he's decided that he's going to break a party that was prepared to completely go along with him. So is that a winning strategy? I mean, it's one thing for Donald Trump to run as the insurgency candidate, you know, blow it all up, burn it all down back in 2016. It's kind of different when he's going for the Trumpian restoration, isn't it? Well, we'll find out. Yeah, you know, I don't think it's helpful to talk about Donald Trump in terms of strategy. He doesn't right. have a strategy. He has a personality. I mean, it's a narcissistic personality, but it's, I think you're doing a very coherent, rational analysis of why it doesn't make sense for him to do this. But I don't even know if Donald Trump is capable of thinking about a party as an institution, even yeah. one that's behind yeah, right. him. He's only capable of thinking about his ego. So he's just going to keep pushing until he destroys the thing that was behind him. Well, and I, I think what he's counting on also is that everybody will, you know, come to heel, that he will break all of his opposition like he has in the past. I mean, he does have sort of a feral understanding 
of the weakness of Republicans. He looks at them and he says, you know what, if I bully them, if I insult them, if I threaten them, they will uh, they will love me. They will, they will do my bidding because they have in the past, right? This strategy has worked for him over and over and over again. And I think he just assumes that it will work. And I'm sorry to tell you, Will, maybe it will. So can we talk about Ukraine? Let's do it. I'm interested in your take on all of this, this debate about whether or not we should have preemptive sanctions or whether we should wait until Putin actually invades Ukraine. I have to admit that I've been too disconnected from that particular debate. I know that you've weighed in. I mean, you've been you know following this. So the argument is, why wait for the, tranks, uh, the, the tanks to cross the border? You should impose these brutal sanctions on Vladimir Putin right now in his inner circle. So what do you think? What, what's, your, what's your take? So it seems insane to me, right, to be imposing sanctions beforehand. Now, it has been explained. <clears throat> Lindsey Graham's argument is we're going to pass a sanctions package and we're going to put a temporary waiver on it. In other words, we're telling Putin, this is what we're going to do if you go into Ukraine. It seems to me that's just posturing, like we're going to put it in the formal language of Congress, whereas, you know, the, the American diplomats have already sort of told, and the Europeans, more importantly, have told the Russians, here's what we're going to do if you go in. But I have to subscribe to the original idea of deterrence, which is that the sanctions come if you invade, and that's the deterrent. I saw a great interview with the Pentagon spokesman, John Kirby, on uh, on Fox News this weekend. And this is literally what, what John Kirby says. He says, if it's a deterrent, quote, if it's a deterrent and you use it before the aggression, you lose the deterrent effect. That makes a lot of sense to me. He goes on and says, if you punish somebody for something that they haven't done yet, then they might as well just go ahead and do it. So this is really basic understanding of deterrence. And it seems to me it's a little crazy to wave this in Putin's face beforehand for the reasons that John Kirby just outlined. I am unclear exactly what the state of play here is, given the very different tone that you get out of the Ukrainian government and the warnings that our government is giving about how imminent the attack is. We have pulled out all of our most of the embassy personnel to told Americans to leave. We've pulled out our troops. Uh, apparently, in this phone call with Biden and Zelensky, they got him to back off on using the word imminent. But it is there is a, a certain amount of dissonance between the message you're getting from the actual Ukrainian government and our government about the nature of the threat. What do you make of that? Well, I think the answer is that we in the United States, not not to offend the Ukrainians, but if we generate panic in Ukraine, that's not generally our problem. That's the Ukrainians' problem, right? The Ukrainians are looking at this as if the Russians come in, there's going to be a war and that's going to be hell here. But if we can get the Russians not to come in, then why should we, in that scenario, have suffered like a crazy panic over the possibility that they would come in? Let's let's hope that let's let's try to keep the good scenario as good as possible as long as we can. Um, so I think the Ukrainians have an inherent interest in avoiding panic, and that's why they're unhappy about some of this messaging of ours. So the other big story over the weekend was uh, the, the trucker siege in Canada, uh, the, the, the Ambassador Bridge, which had been blocked, which was having real consequences. And finally, it looks like police have managed to clear that bridge. Um, just before we began taping this, I saw a tweet, uh, which must mean it's true, right, of course, uh, that the bridge has, in fact, 
been reopened. But I thought it was fascinating the degree to which um, the Republican Party and the right in this country really embraced this siege, really embraced the defiance of police. You have Tucker Carlson basically saying, if the military and the police dare to do anything, then whatever happens is on them. Really, so much for backing the blue. And then you had Rand Paul over the weekend saying that he he hopes that these things spread, that that the truckers actually clog up American cities, uh, you know, calling for this kind of illegal uh, disruption, which, as I tweeted out over the weekend, my sense uh, was that just I'm just spitballing here that maybe Hannity and Rand Paul would have a different attitude if the if these uh, sieges were being conducted by Black Lives Matter. But it's kind of an inversion. Of what uh, of, of what the right has been saying over the last couple of years, the party of law and order becomes the party of screw the police. Let's uh, let's park these these trucks right on these bridges and these freeways and shut down and shut down downtowns. Yeah, and this is one of those issues where the difference between democratic politics and republican politics really comes to the fore, right? Like you're thinking, and a lot of people would think like like a republican, which is. Here's a political party, in this case, the the GOP, that is allying itself with people who are breaking the law, who are creating disruption, who are literally like up against the police who are trying to liberate the city, liberate the bridge from this blockage. And you would think as a sort of normal person in touch with American values (laughs) or, or Canadian values for that matter, that this would be a huge political opportunity. So in that scenario, you would have the president, in this case, Joe Biden, getting out in front and saying, how dare these people block traffic, block goods from getting to people. There are, you know, there will be all sorts of harm done to ordinary people by this civil disobedience. And we are the party of the police and we're not going to stand for it. But Democrats don't do that, right? That's, they don't have this gut sense of you have just opposed yourself to law and order and we are going to make you pay for it. I assume the polling would be on the side of doing that, of, of standing up for the police and standing up for the public that wants to be able to get to their you know, workplace or get their products. But I just don't see Democrats moving on it. Okay, explain that to me. Help me understand that. It's just not a reflex that they have, right? I mean, yeah. the last time Democrats had this reflex was when, you know, the songs that we heard in the Super Bowl halftime show were new, right? I mean, you have to go back 30 years to get to the Bill Clinton Democratic Party where you had people running the Democrats who were just in touch with these cultural values. And look, what I think what's going to happen, Charlie, is that there's going to be an invasion of Ukraine and this backlash that should have come and should have been led by Joe Biden and the White House just will have failed to have happened. So I can't explain it other than the lack of being in touch with these values and the lack of a killer instinct. So speaking of the Democrats, there is obviously a, and we talked about this before, this gap between the college-educated Democratic voters and non-college-educated Democratic voters between the Democratic elites, to use a shorthand, and your blue-collar traditional constituency. Matty Glazius uh, tweeted out some numbers from uh, Gallup poll numbers. The gap on an issue like abortion is really dramatic. So among college-educated folks, about 84% of college-educated Democrats are pro-choice. But when you get to non-college graduates who are Democrats, I want to stress these, these are Democratic voters, 36% of non-college graduate Democratic voters are basically pro-life. Really kind of extraordinary. So for example, 
among college graduates who are Democratic voters, essentially 55% say that, that abortion should be legal under any circumstances. But among non-college Democrats, it's only 38%. Uh, so there's a real... I'm guessing that you would also find this gap on issues like law and order and maybe on immigration as well. There's kind of a, and, and again, obviously, you know, a lot of folks have been talking about this, but, you know, you really see very starkly a disconnect, don't you? Yeah. And what is your best guess on this? I'm thinking that it's religion. I'm thinking that the non-college educated Democrats are more religious and therefore on some of the social issues more likely to be morally conservative. What do you think? Well, I also I think that's that's what's shown up with uh, Hispanic blue collar voters and even uh, African-American blue collar voters is they are quite culturally conservative. This sometimes gets missed. The assumption is, well, okay, they're they're part of this rising demographic, so they must share all of our values. But in fact, um, they are much more traditional. They are more likely to be church going. There is obviously a religious component. Wasn't that one of the big shocks that Hispanic voters, after four years of, you know, Trumpian xenophobia, were more likely to vote for Republicans than before? And I think that's that is part of this this cultural disconnect you might you might be seeing. Yeah, although I think in the case of the Hispanic voters, there was a lot of dispute about what that was about. Like the, a lot of Hispanic voters were happy with the economy and just thinking, I'm going to vote for the incumbent because I'm happy with the economy. And they, they were setting aside what what liberals thought they would vote on, which was that this president doesn't like Hispanics. Um, I, I do have a question related to that about immigration. So one of the things that Matt Iglesias highlighted here was a significant difference on things like deportation between um, the non-college educated and yeah. college educated Democrats. And what I couldn't tell is how is whether that is another values issue somehow. Like mm. we don't want people coming into our country illegally. That's a values thing. So the non-college educated Democrat are more, are more conservative on that. Or is it an economic thing? Where, you know, if you're in a white collar profession, you're just not as afraid of an immigrant taking your job. But if you're working in a blue collar profession, you are. I think that's part of it. Yes, no question about it. But I also think that there is a that this fundamental uh, play by the rules uh, ethos, which is still very strong, which is that you work hard, you play by the rules, you should get rewarded. If you do not play by the rules, you jump the line that ought not to be applauded. And I think that that's deeply ingrained among people with with more traditional values. And they're not necessarily wrong. I mean, I, I am not surprised to find people who have gone through the legal immigration process and crossed all the T's, dotted all the I's, spent years waiting. I'm not surprised to find that they are sometimes resentful of people who just cross the border and, and feel that they're taking advantage of the system. You know, sometimes it's it's the phenomenon and I'm going to relate this to something else. It's, it's, it's when you're actually closer to the problem that you find the, the greatest resentment. So, that, for example, I mean, if somebody is sitting in a, you know, a seminar in Oberlin College, they're not going to be outraged about this. But if you are, you know, an Hispanic blue collar worker in southern Texas who has played by the rules, you might be resentful watching people taking advantage of the system. Somebody gave me this insight a few years ago about Wisconsin politics, and he said, there are a lot of people in this state who have a median income of $38,000 a year. They work full time and they raise their family on something like $38,000 a year, and they're not on most people's radar screen. But I will tell you that these are the people who are most upset 
about the people who are you know close to them, their brother-in-law, their sister-in-law who are on disability or on food stamps, or they think that they are somehow, they're not working, but they're close to them in terms of, you know, economic status. And, and that's where the real resentment is. And I wonder if you're saying the same thing with immigration. Yeah, you know, the and proximity, actually- The proximity factor. Yeah. Right. And I think if you're sitting in that Oberlin seminar, you, uh, you're a good liberal, you think of Hispanics as, as a group, as a, as a relatively monolithic. And I can tell you, since I grew up in Texas, that is not at all true. Um, and like I grew up with people who had Hispanic surnames, they're sixth and seventh generation. The, the surnames continue, the identity somewhat continues, but these people do not look at people who are coming over the border as fundamentally as kin, right? They're like, first of all, you're coming over the border illegally. But secondly, even if you aren't, and I would like to look at the numbers on attitudes about legal immigration, not just illegal, which would help us settle some of these questions we're discussing, but uh, they, they're not looking at, at these folks as, great, come on in. They've been here a while. They are like the other Americans who have been here for a while and do not want people coming from other countries and competing for, for those jobs. No, I, I, I think you're right. So let me tell you what I don't want to talk about today and obviously bringing it up, so therefore talking about it. This is the anniversary of the school shooting at Parkland School. I have to tell you that I, this is the one subject that for the last more than 20 years, I find the most difficult to talk about. I hate talking about these school shootings because I just think, first of all, they're so horrible to me. They're so horrific to me. Uh, I think what happened in Sandy Hook in some ways kind of broke me in terms of on this issue. And I just don't want to hear the traditional arguments about it. It's just, it's, it's, it's beyond imagining. And I think it brings out our most trivial debates sometimes on this. So I don't know, unless you have some thoughts on it. I just, I, I find it to be Almost nothing is like beyond the pale for PS people who listen to this podcast know. I just really have a hard time talking about these things because it's just so painful. Looking at the pictures, it just it just breaks my heart. I just cannot imagine those parents. I cannot imagine what would this would be like. Yeah, I I can't either. And I have to tell you, Charlie, this is one of those issues where I am the lib. I I have no visceral feeling for guns. No. I understand gun culture is out there. I grew up in gun culture, but it's not my culture. And the idea that we have as many weapons, I mean, an insane number of firearms in this country, way more than anybody needs. And with the damage that it does is just always shocking to me. I don't know what to do about it. And I understand the problem of illegal guns and how you round them up. But um, I pray for the day when this country sort of moves enough beyond gun culture that we can seriously discuss reducing the number of them and regulating them in a way that prevents more parklands. Part of the reason I find it so frustrating is, you know, what is the justification for having, you know, high volume magazines, you know, or bump stocks or any of those things? There's just no rational reason to have all of that. I don't know that there are, that there's any magic bullet. I'd be in favor of red flag laws. Uh, I think that there needs to be much more attention to mental health, but, but this fetishization of guns seems to have gotten worse. I mean, it's one thing to say, okay, we don't want to have draconian gun laws uh, after 2012, which Again, if, if Sandy Hook does not, you know, change the country and force you to confront how horrible our gun culture is, I don't know what would. But far from being sobered by that, this, you know, this fetish of guns, politicians posting themselves with these, you know, big dick pics of guns and everything, it's just, it's stomach turning. 
And I yeah, this is an and this is an issue where I guess I, first of all, I think it's a cultural issue. I think yep. that our culture has to change, and this is not something where conservative people who are morally conservative tend to think of this as a cultural issue, but it is. Uh, this is, I mean, think of it. Uh, I don't want to push the analogy too far, but there are a lot of resemblances between the issue of guns and the issue of abortion. And a conservative will often say, look, you don't need, you know, abortions in the sixth and seventh month. We should have sensible regulations. There has to be a cultural change in America. So there are fewer of these. I know there will be illegal abortions, but that doesn't excuse that we shouldn't have any laws. And I don't understand why conservatives can't start to think about guns a little bit more in that way. No, I don't think they make that connection at all. And, and it is and it is a cultural issue. I'm old enough to remember when Democrats decided that they were going to have to basically stand down on the gun issue because it was killing them in places like rural Ohio, Michigan and Wisconsin, and then decided that they were going to weigh back into it. And, you know, frankly, I, I think they have paid a price for all of it. But also, you know, here's the other disconnect on the gun issue. Now, I said I wasn't going to talk about it, but uh, very much like abortion, where I think that there is a vast middle consensus about sane gun laws, just as I think that there is a vast middle moderate approach to abortion. And yet those voices are drowned out by the extremes. You know, for example, I really remember uh, we had a for many years, we had a debate in Wisconsin about whether or not you should have legal concealed carry. We were not the last state, but close to the last state in the country that allowed concealed carry. And this was something that, that conservatives and Republicans had pushed for. And finally got the same kind of concealed carry that you have in many other states. And immediately the NRA decided it was going to up the ante. That, that, and they began pushing for what they called constitutional carry. This still makes me crazy, by the way. Which essentially says you should be able to carry a gun without getting a permit, without a background check, without any training whatsoever. And it was like, wait, this is bait and switch. It is one thing for responsible law-abiding gun owners who have been trained in the use of firearms to be able to get a permit. That is one thing. This notion that you should be able to carry a gun that you may not know how to use without any background check anywhere is insane. It's nuts. And at the same time, they began emphasizing the legality of open carry so that people would come in with AR-15s into, you know, open air markets in Appleton, Wisconsin. And I remember I was still on the radio at the time and I thought, this stuff is crazy. This does not help legal gun owners establish the, the fact that you are, you know, concerned with safety and being responsible. And I'll tell you, Will, overwhelmingly, gun owners in places like Wisconsin who listen to conservative talk radio agreed with that. They thought it was crazy that you would have, uh, perm, you know, no permits, no training for carrying guns. They thought it was crazy that people would be carrying, you know, AR-15s, you know, into open air markets in, in, in public. But those are the voices that are not heard in this debate. Yeah. And what we hear instead is this sort of slippery slope argument, right? Is that we can't give an inch because you know that if you do, the, the other side will bring socialism or Nazism or whatever the argument is. And uh, it's that argument, the slippery slope argument is one of the great poisons that's in our system right now. 
So I'm not sure how we break out of that. I think it's symptomatic of the fact that our politics takes place in primaries now instead of general elections. So we're just going to have to restore the power of the voters in the middle to actually decide whether a Democrat or a Republican gets elected in any district from election to election. So what else are you going to be keeping your eye on this week? That thing that I was doing today was about was about uh, Lindsay, so I can't do that one. Um, well, I think part of it is we're waiting around to figure out whether there's going to be a war in Europe. I mean that yeah. that 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 will you know suck up all of the oxygen. Everything else we're thinking about will be shoved into the background if, in fact, Russia invades. And it does strike me again, and and, and maybe this is one of these hopeless fights um, because we have such short historical memories. But to listen to um, Republicans and conservatives railing about Biden's uh, weakness. And I think Biden has handled uh, Ukraine relatively well in contrast to Afghanistan. But it's as if they've totally forgotten four years of Donald Trump kissing up to Vladimir Putin, cooperating, appeasing with Vladimir Putin, emboldening Vladimir Putin, uh, shaking down the government of Ukraine I mean, it, it's, it's as if none of this ever happened. Why, why is Vladimir Putin, why does he think America is weak? Why does he think he could get away with Ukraine? Remember, we had a president of the United States who was, you know, kissing his toes and was impeached for threatening, basically, you know, extorting the government of Ukraine that, hey, if you actually want weapons to defend yourself against the Russians, you need to help me smear Joe Biden. <laughs> And that's been dropped into this vast memory hole. I mean, that's one of the reasons why we all feel like we're taking crazy pills. Yes, it has. And I have a, okay, I have a weird bank shot theory about this, Charlie, which is, so I am, I have been hearing for at least a week, couple of weeks, this argument on the right that, look, Putin never did any of this stuff. He never, he did, he didn't invade countries when Trump was president, right? He did it when Obama, he, he takes yeah. Crimea when Obama's president. He's going to now take Ukraine when Biden's president, but he didn't mess with Donald Trump because Donald Trump was such a tough guy. Now, what I actually think is that during the Trump presidency, as long as it could go on, Vladimir Putin's attitude was, I am not going to do anything to mess with the greatest accomplishment I've got so far, which was to establish a satellite regime in the United States of America, right? If I have an ally like Donald Trump, who has essentially reduced United States foreign policy to commerce, right? And he's, the guy is undermining NATO at every opportunity and and threatening to like pull out of military bases, defund allies, why would I mess with such a good thing? So that's my theory of why Putin oh, didn't I, invade I, any countries. I don't think that's a bank shot. I think that's that is a great shot. Uh, you, you ought to write this one up because I think that again, what was Vladimir Putin's number one goal? It is to weaken NATO. It is to break up that alliance. And there he had Donald Trump, who was the perfect card. There's no scenario in which Vladimir Putin would have made the Western alliance more vulnerable than having Donald Trump in the White House. And Donald Trump on a regular basis sitting around going, why, why shouldn't we withdraw troops from here, from here? I mean, again, if you're Vladimir Putin, the, the odds of the United States just simply abandoning all of its allies had never been higher than when Donald Trump was in the White House. And if Donald Trump gets back in the White House, um, 
you know, what happens to Article 5? What happens to American troops in Europe and around the, the world? Um, Vladimir Putin's return on investment um, is stunningly, I mean, in terms of his messing with American politics and his relationship with Donald Trump, the ROI is like beyond imagining. Yeah. And and so there's a sort of macho way of looking at war that, you know, Vladimir Putin might send in a military and take a country, right? And that is a terrible, terrible thing. But in the current situation, if that were to happen, we currently have the United States president uh, putting troops in all of the NATO countries around Ukraine and sending a clear message. You mess with the NATO countries and you're going to be messing with the United States and you're going to have a, a world war on your hands. If Donald Trump were president, Putin would be in a much better position because instead of talking about taking one country, he would have an American president who is undermining the whole entirety of NATO, right? And he would have a, ch a chance to roll back not just this one country, but the Baltics, Poland. The, he, he, would, he would have many more opportunities if Trump were president. No question about it. Will Salatin, again, thank you for joining me on our Monday podcast. I appreciate it very much. Thanks, Charlie. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow, and we'll do this all over again. <laughs>